Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. Boy, do I got a great treat for you. I know all of us, everybody in this uh, world is kind of, I would say, scared. I'm scared. But what about cancer? But what if you could find cancer early enough to make a difference? And so today we're going to talk about a really cool test called Gallery. And I have a special guest today. His name is Dr. Whitney Jones. Um, He is a practicing gastroenterologist, and now he is a senior medical director at the company called Grail, who makes this awesome test called Gallery. So welcome, Dr. Jones. Amy, good morning, and so glad to be here with you. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into cancer screening. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great story. I, I I love to tell it. So I'm a I'm a gastroenterologist by training, and particularly a, a specific field, which is therapeutic endoscopy. So let me just interrupt you a, real quick, because some people might not even know what a gastroenterologist is. So oh, perfect. Yeah. So for, gastroenero- this... <laughs> yeah, gastroenterologist is someone who takes care of digestive diseases. So sort of anything that has to do with absorbing food, processing food, uh, eliminating food. So esophagus, stomach, stomach, colon, uh, also the liver and the pancreas and gallbladder are right in the areas because they help assist and aid with digestion and processing. So, you know, it was a great field because it's just such a huge, immense piece of your body that we use every single day all the time. And I was really drawn to it because, uh, you know, when I was training, they had just invented endoscopy. So we could actually not just wonder what was going on, but we could actually go in there and look and figure it out many times, fix it on the spot. Uh, and then, you know, the patient could walk out with, you know, sort of a new look on life and a new answer. But part of that uh, look also meant finding a lot of advanced cancers uh, when people presented with problems. And so, uh, but that's what gastroenterologists do. You probably know us for taking care of heartburn and your colon cancer screening and IBS and maybe your inflammatory bowel disease. But we also do a lot of liver disease and pancreatic disease. Lots, lots of th- good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so now you're the senior medical director for this company called Grail. How did you get involved in that? Well, I, I actually I ended up calling Grail to see if they were interested in these speakers because I had read about their technology. A little aside from what I had done, so 20 years ago, I I saw three people in one week who had obstructed blocked livers from colon cancer that had spread throughout their body. And I was sort of like, what's going on? We were supposed to do colonoscopy to prevent this. And it turned out in Kentucky, where where you and I both live, or or trained anyway, uh, you know, we were the worst state in the nation for colon cancer cases, colon cancer deaths, and we were 49th in the nation in screening. So over the last 20 years, myself uh, and a lot of folks, we founded an organization called the Colon Cancer Prevention Project, and along with many partners across the entire state, now are the 17th best state in the nation for screening 
and our deaths are down over a third, our mortality, I mean, our incidence rates, the number of people who get it are down almost 30% also. About 700 people each year either don't get it or don't, don't die from it. So I became addicted to public health because of our capacity to really make uh, change and save people's lives and reduce their suffering. Congratulations. Oh, big team effort. Yes. So what is this company or or what is this test now gallery? I've, right, well, I've referred it to my patients as a liquid biopsy for cancer. Would you say that's an accurate, like a little snippet of, of how to relay it to a patient? Yeah, it, it is. And, and, basically, and I didn't answer your other question. As a senior medical director, I basically do external education and interaction with people about the test from a medical standpoint. And then internally, we drive uh, the educational information and publishing pieces uh, for the company. So, so, so what is it? Yeah, it's a liquid biopsy. So essentially, most of the time when a cancer diagnosis is suspected, it's because of something you feel or something that shows up on an x-ray or you see, and then you have to get a biopsy uh, to determine and confirm that that's cancer. Uh, previously, and, and still today, for the most part, we have to actually do that by putting needles into tumors or things that we see or taking specimens. Uh, gallery, importantly, works as a screening test. It's not a diagnostic test. It's a screening test that uses a simple blood draw to identify cancer signals in the blood from over 50 different cancer types through a common shared signal. And so we do use the blood to sample and evaluate for cancer, uh, but it's not what I would call a liquid biopsy. Liquid biopsy uh, is really about people who have a known cancer and a known genetic sequence of cancer, and then you can look in the blood to see if there's any evidence of recurrent cancer. Uh, but it is essentially a blood-based screening test that uses DNA to assess for cancer prior to symptom development, so earlier stage of cancers. And you said 50 different types of cancers that it's looking for. Is it any specific uh, kind of grouping of cancer or like, because I would imagine there's lots more can types of cancers more than 50. So great question. That's a great question. So what we do is we've actually determined a common biological signal for cancer. So rather than, and so when I say 50 cancers, really what we're looking for is a common cancer signal that all of these cancer types, as disparate as lung cancer may be from ovarian or from uh, leukemia, all have a final common signal pathway. And, and, and even though we talk about it being a DNA test, it's a DNA test that's a little different. We're looking at the methylation patterns, which are, uh, it's what's called the epigenome. So we're not really looking at whether or not your base pairs have been changed, but whether or not the codes that control the regulation of your genes and your cells have been changed. And, and, and it's just a very rich environment. It's, uh, we, we look at over a million different sites of methylation in your blood, but it is in fact a screening signal based on those changes in DNA methylation. And so when I, when I look at it sort of from that broad piece, we first find this common cancer signal. And then secondarily, the methylation is actually the fingerprint of your organ development. That's how your organs, uh, how your liver becomes your liver or your ovary becomes the ovary because methylation turns proteins on and off in your body as you develop. And those protein methylation fingerprints stay in the cancers that tend to develop. And so 
we use that as the second way to not only uh, identify you have a cancer signal, but then accurately identify uh, over not, around 90% of the time where that cancer signal is coming from. So that's that makes the workups really efficient and really focused. So uh, we may we think we may even identify cancers that we've not been trained on yet. How accurate is this test? I know before we we started recording, you started talking about sensitivity, specificity. I'm not sure my listeners would know what sensitivity and specificity really means. So that's why I asked and how, how accurate is it? And is if you do get a positive, does that mean you really have a cancer in there? Could you comment on the, that? No, that's a great, the great question. And again, the, the, uh, you know, what we really look at, there's a couple of different ways we look at accuracy. And, and one is, is what I would call the positive predictive value, which is what's the likelihood if you have, if you have a positive test that you actually have cancer. Because remember, this is a screening test. And the, the likelihood that if a person has a positive signal that they have cancer is between 43 and 44%. Uh, and so that's very high. When you think of a positive mammogram, again, uh, the chance of having cancer with a positive mammogram is only about 5%. All right, so this is almost 10 times more predictive. That being said, uh, we don't pick up every cancer equally. Now, what has to happen, and again, as an OB, you know this, um, we shed uh, DNA from cells into blood all the time. And this is how uh, pregnant non-invasive prenatal testing works. Uh, so if cancers don't shed DNA into the blood, our test is unable to identify them. So slow growing or uh, cancers that are uh, so small that don't shed enough DNA, we won't be able to attack. So our overall sensitivity is about 51% for cancer, but we preferentially do very well in aggressive cancers uh, that are the most likely to cause mortality. And in those cancers, uh, about 12 of them, we pick up about 68% of cancers uh, before they reach stage four. What what cancers would those be that you're referring to? What types? That's going to be lung, ovary, pancreatic, colon, uh, liver, head and neck, plasma cell neoplasms, uh, lymphomas, uh, anal carcinomas, uh, bladder carcinomas, uh, those are the majority. Uh, again, in the, in the gynecologic space, the, the, our, our, our biggest pickup is really uh, in uh, ovarian cancer, where we, we pick up 50% uh, of ovarian cancers in stage one and almost 80% of ovarian cancers in stage two and only go up from there. So, And right now, just for your listeners, our current screening rate for ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is zero. You know, We've tried and tried and tried to find something to screen for with ovarian cancer for but have been unsuccessful to date. So, yes, uh, many so, patients so, ask me, well, can I just get an ultrasound once a year or that blood test CA125? And although I don't think there's any har personal harm in doing those, sometimes insurance don't like to cover it as well as the studies have not proven that it, it affects mortality or detection. No, you're absolutely correct. So, and, and really, you know, think about pancreatic cancer. That's that's going to be the third most common cause of death pretty soon. It'll probably overtake colorectal. Uh, the vast majority of people, it comes out of left field and there is screening for very, very high risk people that's shown to work, but probably not only one or 2% of people are undergoing screening. So that again, just comes out of left 
field. And we pick up about 60% of pancreatic cancer in stage one and stage two when people have a chance. So uh, you're right. I mean, it isn't like we haven't collectively as a medical profession been looking for screening options. We just haven't found anything that that's worked. And so th this is a, a huge opportunity for us to take all the things that we love about early detection, uh, pap smears, colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, uh, and apply those and, and make those available to all cancers. That's why this is such a huge uh, advance forward in, in terms of our screening world. Yeah, I was trying to think of the list of what what cancers do we have kind of guideline screening tests for? We obviously have cervical cancer with the pap smear, breast cancer with mammogram, colonoscopy for colon cancer. Um, I think x-rays for people that are high risk for lung cancer. Am I missing anything? Well, I, I think there's some societal organizations for, for subgroups of people. For instance, in GI disease, if you have cirrhosis, or advanced fibrosis, uh, ultrasonography on a regular basis is appropriate. People, for instance, with Barrett's esophagus, which is a condition of the uh, esophagus or the swallowing tube that gets changes related to chronic heartburn, those people have screening. But, but the problem is, the, you know, cancer comes out of left field for most people. Mm -hmm. And a, a minority of people who develop any one particular cancer type are undergoing a societal uh, base screening, much less USPSTF. So the way I like to look at it is uh, right now we're screening for about 30% of cancer cases and about 25% of cancer mortality, which means that, and, and that includes what we you and I call the USPSTF, which are the ones you've mentioned, but that means about 70 to 75% of cancers are completely unscreened for uh, outside of very unusual circumstances. And we only detect about half of those cancers that we screen. So our cancer detection rate overall in America for screening is only about 16%. So that's pretty dismal. That lets us mm -hmm. know that 84% of cancers that we're diagnosing are getting diagnosed because of symptoms or they had something going on and talked to their doctor. And unfortunately, you know, when we make a cancer diagnosis because of symptoms, many, many times it's unfortunately advanced stage disease and is spread. So, uh, you know, that's what we're really trying to move away from is that uh, diagnosing cancers late. We're trying to shift those back in stage, uh, again, across the entire spectrum to the greatest degree possible. So I know the statistics for some of my GYN conditions, one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. One in 70 women will get ovarian cancer. Um, what what's the number of just as a human what are your chances of just getting a cancer any type of cancer diagnosis in your lifetime yeah well for men it's about one in two and for women it's about one in three and again that's because so many men have prostate cancer as they age right uh, if 75 percent of men who are 75 have some type of indolent uh, prostate carcinoma and so uh, but again, that feels like a heavy burden. My gosh, 50-50, uh, it's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, but again- so this is I, a I mean, real problem. Oh, it's it's going to be the number one cause of death in America, surpassing cardiovascular disease starting in 2030. And uh, one of the worldwide causes, uh, leading causes of death. Yeah, 600,000 people every year die from cancer. That's about 1,700 uh, a day. 
right? And uh, so it, it is a real issue. And again, uh, it, it isn't that they're, you know, they're, you know, life, life comes at you when you get old, but, uh, and we're all going to obviously succumb to something in our time, but being able to identify cancer in its early pre-symptomatic stage when it can be cured uh, gives certain people a significant advantage to extend the quality and the quantity of their life. So I don't think we're just diagnosing cancers five years early and people are dying at the same time. You know, tell, tell that to a stage two colon cancer survivor who's lived 10 years, right? Or a mm -hmm. breast cancer survivor who's 20 years out. Uh, so I, I think we really have the opportunity to make a dramatic uh, improvement in the lifestyle of people uh, and, and, and really, you know, go on offense against cancer, right? We'll really go out there and you know, we know it's coming, right? That the statistics we just talked about are, are crystal clear. Yeah. Uh, but now we have the chance to actually go out and 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 sort of defend ourselves, uh, rather than just sitting around and waiting for uh, the enemy to get on the boat. Right. So this is just a simple blood test, um, and I know this because uh, I mentioned before we went online, I did this test about 18 months ago and actually just repeated it last week. So it's just a simple blood test, but. Um, Let's talk about who should do, I'm 53, so that's the main reason why I did it. Um, but who who should do this test? Is this for everybody? Well, you know, we designed this test uh, for people who are at an elevated risk for cancer. And the easiest way that we're able to ID that risk is through age, which is the number one driver for cancer risk. So we see this for people 50 to 80, uh, who are in appropriate enough health to obviously undergo diagnostic evaluation if it's positive uh, for men and women. Uh, so that's who it's for. There may be other people under age 50 for whom uh, consideration and discussion with the uh, provider may be appropriate, such as people who are cancer survivors, right? Uh, people who have a very strong family or genetic history of cancer. Uh, those people who are very heavy smokers or have obesity, and there's a few others like transplantation or immunosuppression. Uh, but again, the, the sweet part of this test is 50 to 80. That's my take home for everyone. Uh, now, let me tell you who it's not for. It's not for people under 21. It's not for women who are currently pregnant. And it is also not for people who are within three years of a prior cancer diagnosis uh, and treatment. So we like for people to be at least three years out and successfully treated from a cancer and they're okay to come back in. This is not a test that's used right after you get done with surgery to see if there's still cancer around. That's called a minimal residual disease test. And this test isn't really engineered and designed to, to meet that function. Uh, at Grail, we're working on a variety of products that will meet that function, but this test is really developed broadly for populations uh, who are at that increased risk for screening based on age. So what happens if you get a positive test? Um, you know, when I first heard about this, oh, it's probably been two and a half years ago, my concern as a guy, because I'm not an oncologist, I don't treat cancer, I'm not a GYN oncologist, is my concern was, is what if I do this, and this was three years ago, I think things have changed now. Um, I've spoken to my local oncologists and GYN oncologists, and they are now actually on board and even offering this test. But three years ago, my concern was, um, and it was similar to 
15 years ago when I started first doing the BRCA test um, for hereditary breast cancer screening with Myriad, um, I had done that test and then sent people to breast surgeons and the breast surgeons were like, why is she doing this test? Blah, 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 blah. And now it's certainly standard of care. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and so I really think that this test is soon going to be standard of care. But that was my concern when I learned about this test several years ago, that I would get a false positive. And then the same thing would happen is my patients would take it to their oncologist and their oncologist would say, I'm doing some voodoo test. Um, <laughs> I, I think things have changed and at least my local um, oncologists have looked at the data and gave it the thumbs up. But what do we do as a primary care physician when we do get a positive test back? What are the next steps that oncologists are doing? Right. Well, just just to prep that a little bit, you know, the, this test is designed to have extremely low numbers of false positives. So we have about five false positives out of about a thousand tests that are ordered. So that's an extremely low false positive rate, 0.5%. Uh, and so, again, when a person has a positive gallery test, and that'll be about one to two people out of 100, because as we talked about, Amy, most people uh, at any one moment don't have cancer. It's that cumulative risk we, we talk about when we look at lifetime risk. So, when a, so the vast majority of people with a negative, it's like, great job. You know, it's not a guarantee you don't have cancer, uh, but let's make sure you uh, are doing your mammograms and your pap smears and you're not smoking and everything else that we can do, see in a year for this. If it is positive and then it's about one to two percent of people, uh, then what happens is, number one, we actually deliver to the patient and to the doctor uh, a, a signal of origin call, meaning where is that cancer signal likely coming from? And we can predict that with that nine out of 10% of the time accurately. So what happens is that the patient and the doctor get together, they look at those cancer signal origins, and they direct an appropriate evaluation based upon those results. So if a person were to have a, uh, say, a ovarian signal, then uh, that person would undergo ovarian imaging and likely not, you don't just look at the ovary, you look at the entire pelvic region. And uh, usually with either CT or ultrasound or some combination, I think in general, a positive result doesn't just trigger an imaging uh, referral. It actually triggers a referral to the specialist who's in charge of that organ system. So a primary care doctor, for instance, who got an ovarian signal would be sending it to an OBGYN who would probably perform imaging and look at that. So we, they need to undergo a diagnostic evaluation. And about 50% of the time, uh, 44 to 43, 43, 44%, according to our most recent studies, but higher and higher risk people, uh, there's going to be cancer present in nine out of time, nine out of 10 times that'll be accurately predicted. So the short answer is they need a diagnostic workup and evaluation. There'll still be false positives if you have a positive gallery. Okay. Uh, about half of those cases, when we look for those cancers, we won't find them. But it's going to be important to follow those people longitudinally, uh, make sure there's no other signs or symptoms. We do offer free retesting within three to six months if a person's had an extensive evaluation, and we'll retest that site. Uh, and then again, if that's negative, we recommend that person stay on a routine and normal screening pathway. Uh, some doctors will want to go ahead and you know do more extensive imaging uh, and, and as they deem clinically appropriate. But we tend to stay focused on those uh, directed evaluations, and uh, we have medical experts that are available to discuss with the doctors 
uh, you know, the results in, of their workup and, and go through them with them. I think oncologists are going to be seeing cases when they have a tissue diagnosis. I don't think they're going to be doing the workup for all these galleries. I think it's going to be mm -hmm. gynecologists and gastroenterologists and head and neck doctors uh, who are going to be seeing these signals of origin and be working them up. How, assuming it's negative, how often uh, would you recommend the test be repeated? Well, we see this as an annual test right now because those cancers that are the most lethal, and again, think pancreas, lung, uh, ovary, head and neck, esophageal cancer, those have relatively short dwell times, meaning it doesn't take very long from a go to an er from an early stage cancer to a more advanced cancer. And if we're the, the more frequently we're screening with the gallery test, the more likely we are to pick those up in earlier stages. And again, uh, that's why we think this is likely an annual test, but there's lots of data and research going on around it. And uh, I, I can promise you, Grail, the, the company that makes the gallery test, very engaged in research, over 335,000 people worldwide involved in clinical studies. So we see it as an annual test at this time. And uh, over time, we'll understand more about the research and, and perhaps uh, different groups where that, that number may be different. Sometimes I get from my patients is, uh, well, I don't have a family history of that, so I don't really think I'm at risk for that. Now, I think you answered that a little earlier when we talked about your lifetime prevalence of of getting cancer. But how, just for completion's sake, how would you uh, respond to that when a patient says, well, I don't have a family history of any of those of cancer, so I'm not really concerned? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, so what is about a third of cancers occur because of either something you inherited or uh, something you've sort of been exposed to or done? So inherited might be genes that you got from your mom and dad or a predisposition, such as breast cancer with BRCA, or in my world in colon cancer, it would be Lynch syndrome. But again, there's many genes. You, you, you've been a genetic uh, advocate and expert for uh, well over a decade. So you understand the, the, the large number of things that you can in inherit. Uh, uh, so, and in terms of what you've done to yourself, I mean, you know, gosh, we're all live, we get older. Uh, some people smoked, uh, some people carry a lot of extra weight. That's very common in the Midwest. That's a high, stronger risk factor for cancer than we want to think, but it really is. It's probably uh, not quite as high as smoking, but probably second on the list to smoking. Um, and, and so about a third of cancers come out of what you inherit or, or what you've sort of exposed yourself to over your time, which means two thirds of cancers come out of left field, mm -hmm. right? You don't have any idea. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. My, my father-in-law, uh, extremely healthy guy, worked in the medical field, woke up and couldn't walk. And he had cancer that had spread from his pancreatic and liver area into his spine. And so before he had any symptoms whatsoever, he was paralyzed with stage four disease. Mm. And so, you know, here's a guy who never smoked, never drank, a little heavy. You know, uh, this test could have made a difference in his outcome. And so, you know, that's unfortunately what with so many times and so often you and I deal with in our practices uh, is not just that person who, you know, smoked and, and such, but that person who hasn't done anything. So it's about yeah. two thirds, one third. The other thing I think is, is, you know, cancer loves sugar. 
um, and, and high blood sugar and eight, 86%, 85% of the world has issues with blood sugar and most people don't even know it. And a lot of physicians aren't really doing anything until somebody is a full-fledged diabetic. Um, and so that alone, I think, makes almost every American at high risk for getting cancer because of blood sugar dysregulation. I think we are whistling past the graveyard in America <laughs> and the world, not more aggressively talking about and understanding uh, the impacts of glucose intolerance, obesity, and everything that you just spoke about. I mean, the world is certainly knows how to take care of managed diabetes, type 2 diabetes. You can't get on television without seeing, you know, 9,000 commercials about that. And that's important, by the way. But but we're just treating the end symptom. We're not treating the beginning of that, which is, you know, uh, I, I, as you said, I think high fructose, uh, you know, processed foods, yep. their, their impact on obesity and then subsequently prediabetes. Yeah, I, I think we're getting ready to have a tsunami, if you want yeah, to go through. So, agree. you know, as, as I look out there, you know, that's the single greatest thing on our, our list. So I'd concur. And then I think the second greatest thing out there is that, you know, we've we've got healthcare that's only reaching part of the people, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we have it, uh, and 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 you know, if we can't get that prevention piece out there and help people with better nutrition, diet, exercise to maintain all of those positive uh, behaviors and 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 risk modifiers, you know, what's that going to look like in people who aren't getting great access to care right now? I know. Let's talk about the negatives of this test, um, which I would say is the cost. Um, at least at this point, since it's this test is not currently a covered service with insurance companies. Yeah, well, I, I, you're right. Uh, and, and, and that's true. And I would, uh, your listeners and, and you for sure will know that almost every new test that comes out, uh, particularly a new biological test um, like this, and, and I would go back to germline testing, like you said, you were using BRCA 10, 15 years ago in your practice, early adopter. Uh, non-invasive prenatal testing, which is where you can identify abnormalities in the child's uh, blood through the placental uh, DNA. All of the all of these tests, when they come out originally, are, 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 are appear to be expensive, and they're usually not covered by insurance. So that's where we are right now. So it's nine hundred forty nine dollars, uh, and uh, you can use FSA HSA dollars for that. You can also uh, in, engage in a payment plan that we're happy to help out with as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that is the, the biggest negative, but I can assure everyone out there, and I've been working all last week on uh, with our government affairs team, that our single greatest pieces that we're working on is to make sure that this test becomes available to everyone eventually through coverage of insurance. And how we're doing that is by getting this uh, across FDA approval, and we have a whole team and a group that's working toward that, and, and we're working alongside the FDA because they understand how important cancer is and what this could do to impact cancer. So that's number one. Number two, we and a variety of other people who are also working in the area of multi-cancer early detection development uh, have bills in front of the Congress uh, to allow Medicare to go ahead and start on coverage determination for this. Because if Medicare determines that it covers it once it finishes that FDA approval process, then Medicare will be able to cover it, offer it to its beneficiaries. When that happens, 
usually that gets broader commercial as well as Medicaid coverage, uh, which follows immediately. So our goal is certainly that this test becomes available to everyone. Uh, and we understand that in this short term, you know, it feels like a test that's increasing the gaps in care because of the cost. But in America, we have to go through these processes that are laid out by law in order to get this eventually covered by insurance. And by insurance, I also mean Medicaid. Uh, I mean people who even don't have it. If we're going to apply this, an amazing technology like this across the border to save lives, we've got to find a way to make that accessible for everyone. So yeah, I do think that's the the perceived negative of the test right now. But when you when you actually look at it in terms of public health, we're we're we're, we're really in the sweet zone uh, between you know about a hundred thousand dollars per quality life year saved and 50. 50 is sort of the the norm. And again, that's probably in the weeds for your audience. But I'm just saying we're not far away from it. We are working toward it. We want everyone to have this test. Oh, that's really exciting. Um, again, I, that's been the resistance that I got. But, you know, I'm sure a cancer diagnosis costs way more than $950-ish. Um, and the way I look at it is you get one body. So um, you got to take care of it. So, Right. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, when you look at the cost of cancer care, it's going up by 10 to 15 percent per year. And and certainly, you know, we, we develop can new cancer treatments every single day for advanced cancer. But that's not the long term solution. We have to build a bridge to the future in terms of, uh, you know, better managing cancer uh, and cancer risk. And that's through prevention. All of the great work. I'm inspired by what you said about, you know, obesity and, you know, our need to focus on it. But also these new modalities. I mean, what happened is, we conceptually had this for a long time. We just never crossed the technological threshold with DNA uh, power and computing power to get there. Now that we've crossed that threshold, Amy, I can guarantee you we're not going back, right? And so we're going to see this new era come and be almost, I won't say like a tsunami, but in terms of the cancer world, this will definitely change what we're doing. It's going to take cancers that are you know, three and four years out there in the future and bring those into their our current space so we can treat them when they're stage one and stage two, not stage three and stage four. And uh, unfortunately, when you decide to build a bridge across the Ohio River, you know, when you have the architects designing it and the, the bulldozers digging those holes, you still can't drive across the river, but you're making those investments. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see the entire healthcare system as they become more and more aware of this technology and its promise, and I do mean promise, uh, that we'll see them taking those steps to make those proper investments. Because we're not only looking at eventually wanting to save lives and make this cost effective, you know, again, over time, uh, but also save lives from an individual standpoint, those personal lives, those moments and everything like that. I mean, the reason why colon cancer screening and breast and mammography cancer screening is efficient today it's because we invested in it 20 years ago, mm -hmm. not because we're still studying whether or not we should invest in it. So I think we'll get there. I think society is going to get there. So when I discuss this with patients, I can already hear the, the questions. And so one of the questions that I'm sure I will get um, is, so if I do this blood test, then I don't have to do the mammogram, right? Or I don't have to do my colonoscopy, correct? Um you and I know the answer to that, but uh, if you could just answer that for the official record for that 
question. Right. Yeah. And for sure, I, you know, and I, I tell people all the time, you know, uh, when they, they say the patient doesn't want the gallery, I'm like, well, gosh, I've had people tell me they don't want a colonoscopy and I'm a gastroenterologist. So, so no, the, the answer is, is really important. So this test is really designed as a broad net of cancer. The current cancers that you talk about, and they're called USPSTF, United States Preventative Task Force Service, that's lung, breast, colon, cervix, uh, prostate's not recommended unless you talk to your doc and you have certain risks. But we complement those tests because those are all based on very high sensitivity, meaning they never want to miss a cancer. But the result of that high sensitivity is uh, a lot more false positives. Uh, but they still work to develop, to diagnose and find cancer and find it early. And so in cancers such as breast cancer, the gallery test doesn't pick up a lot of early breast cancers because they don't tend to shed cell-free DNA, whereas mammography can find those cancers early. So uh, whether you're trying to, if you want to try to avoid your breast cancer screening in health or your colon cancer screening health, including stool tests or colonoscopies, you know, this test does not do, the, do that. We complement this test because again, currently we're only screening for about 25% of cancers that cause death. The gallery test allows us to expand this uh, to all of those different cancers. Uh, and again, we backfill people who maybe who aren't compliant, uh, people who haven't had their colonoscopy at their mammogram. We're also going to backfill and find cancers for whom their other cancer screening missed it right? Mammogram is not perfect. Stool testing is not perfect. Even lung cancer uh, CT screening, no such thing as a, a perfect cancer screening. I think your audience knows that. So think of this as a way to extend uh, your cancer uh, screening prevention portfolio. So instead of just covering a third of what's in front of you, you can begin to cover 100%. In our practice, uh, we have a kind of a process in place is at the time of your annual exam for everybody age 25 and up. And and then anytime if your family history is suspicious, we do a screening questionnaire to see if somebody is a candidate for genetic testing for cancer. And there's lots of different companies out there for that. We currently use um, Myriad's um, test and most people are familiar with uh, the BRCA test that Angelina Jolie kind of made famous for breast cancer screening. And like I mentioned earlier, we started offering that test you know, 12 years ago. Um, and over the past 12 years, that test has made significant changes. When we first started offering it, you know, you had to always meet these strict criteria for breast and ovarian, and it only tested for BRCA one and two, and now that test, um, it, it expands to 30 different genes to see if you're at risk for several other cancers, not just breast, ovarian, uterine, but melanoma, pancreatic, colon cancer. Um, uh, it, and uh, my thoughts of treating or offering it to patients is almost everybody that's a candidate for screening is it's a hundred percent covered. So the test is just, the test itself has made leaps and bounds, the, the reporting process, just the whole process from a financial standpoint has improved. Um, my questions for you are, what are the future plans with the company Grail and the gallery test for the future? 
Well, those are really great questions. And, and and again, what you saw over those last 15 years, getting to where now it's accessible and more broad, we collectively in the MSED community, not just uh, MSED means multi-cancer early detection test, by the way. We don't think this whole process needs to be 15 years, given that we're losing a COVID size epidemic of people every year from cancer. And so I think the critical issue is, and you're doing a great job, is making sure that every person between 50 and 80 knows that this test exists and that they qualify for it, and then allowing them to make those personal decisions about whether or not at this time in their life that uh, that price tag that's on it right now is worth it to them. So I always tell people it's like screening for blood pressure, right? The reason you screen for blood pressure is you can't Mm -hmm. tell who has it by looking at them. Likewise, you can't tell who has the risk for cancer necessarily outside of your cancer risk because two thirds comes out of left field. Uh, and you also, I, I think it's presumptive of physicians to judge who, who will or wouldn't consider it. Now, cancer means different things to different people and folks are different. I think as a physician, it's extremely important to make sure they're aware. So if they decide and they choose that, that you've done your due diligence and if they decide not to at this time, you've made them aware of it. And so I think what's going to happen is an accelerated version of what you spoke about, which is that we're going to be getting better and better in terms of our sensitivity. Uh, We'll understand more and more the performance of the test when it's positive in terms of you know, those false positives and where areas may be, you know, if cancer is not is missed, where is it missed? We'll understand those patterns better in the next decade. And then I think there's always the chance that we enhance the test instead of only looking at one particular area like methylated DNA. You know, perhaps there are others that fit into that, that improve the sensitivity or the, the uh, not just broadly, but in terms of some specific cancer types. Like we already know that we don't do very well in urinary cancers, bladder, uteral, uh, kidney, uh, and we want to do better in those. And we actually think that the cell-free DNA is probably in the urine. So, you know, I would say the gallery as a company is going to be looking to expand and improve the utilization of this technology across the entire spectrum of cancers and also the entire cancer journey. So so that if someone has an area that looks a little funny on CT, maybe cell-free DNA can help determine whether or not that's real and it should be uh, evaluated for cancer or whether or not it should just be watched. It's going to help people who have had a cancer diagnosis and undergone surgery uh, and then within a certain period of time afterwards be able to tell if that cancer has been completely cured or not to make sure there's no issues in there. And then finally, you know, when someone is being faced with a cancer treatment dilemma, you know, maybe cell-free DNA. In fact, I think likely it's going to help us pick the best therapies for them in a precision oncology type of way. So I really think what's happened in the last decade or so, and you're one of the very early adopters with, you know, uh, utilization of uh, hereditary cancer risk assessment 13 years ago, that the molecular age of medicine has been entered. And, uh, uh, you know, the gallery test and utilizing multi-cancer testing uh, through blood is just going to revolutionize and it's going to become part of the standard. Who could imagine practicing medicine today without a CAT scan? And I would almost suggest to you ask that same question in a decade and, and ask who thought they could practice particularly ca- cancer medicine and cancer prevention without the utilization of molecular screening technology. And so uh, I congratulate you for being at the the, the tip of the sword. Well, Amy. thank you. This is just what I love about medicine is 
it's always changing, but you got to stay on top of it. So thank you so much for uh, joining us. This was really great information and I can't wait to get this uh, podcast out and all of this information out to our patients. Right. Well, on behalf of Grail, we're honored to be here and have the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Uh, you know, we're a wide open company. We have medical information. If you want questions, you know, let us know, reach out to us and certainly check out our website at grail.com around the company and gallery.com about the test. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.